It's an instrument where you can play something really intimate and really symphonic all by yourself. And so it's a really powerful instrument in that way because it's both powerful and it's so intimate. Everybody, here we are at Garth Newell with two of my favorite composers. Can you guys say your names and where you're from right now? I'm Dave Biedmender. Uh, I'm a assistant professor of composition at Michigan State University. I'm Matthew Brown. I am a composer living in New York. Awesome. So the reason that we're all congregated here together is because I just performed two of their works for solo piano. Dave's piece, can you tell us a little bit about what it was and what it entails in terms of solo piano? Yeah, so um, the piece I wrote for Jeanette is called Resonance Modes, and it's for prepared piano and electronics. Um, the preparations, uh, Jeanette's stipulation to me was that preparations are all safe for the piano, and I worked with the piano technician to make sure that. So uh, I use uh, sticky putty, like the kind you use for wall mounting. The 3M uh, sticky putty works best, and I wrap it around the strings and then also lay it across the strings. Felt. Uh, wedges like piano tuners use and also felt strips also like like you use in piano tuning so um, various preparations at different points in the piano and then we amplify the piano and do a little bit of processing and then there's some triggering of pre-recorded sounds things like ice cracking on a pond that is cool. uh, pre-recorded sounds of, of the, the prepared piano so that you sort of blur the line between the electronics and the piano uh, my idea was to create a, a hyper instrument that's not a, not, not a new idea, but just the idea of kind of creating something bigger, better, I say hesitantly, <laughs> <laughs> than the piano, or at least capable of more sounds, right. um, is the idea. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I always hesitate about with prepared piano, especially if people are programming cage, is just that you didn't want it to sound like the piano. You wanted it to sound like a percussion quartet, right? right? And I kind of, I like the sound of the piano. I just think that our palette has gotten bigger, so... Yeah, there's, it, preparing the piano kind of adds another dimension to the instrument. It, it, it essentially turns it into something else, and depending on the preparations, whether it's rather simple preparations that I used or the cage, I mean, it tr can transform it into an entirely different instrument, which with a similar performer interface, which is interesting that you can kind of perform it in a similar way, Yeah. but it changes the sound dramatically, Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is unique. There's not a lot of instruments, I suppose, where the interface stays the same and the sound changes so drastically. And I mean, I have to say, like after playing Pascal's piece where I was inside the piano with mallets mm -hmm. and a lot of uncomfortable hip kind of straining positions, I was very thankful that I could just like sit and play your piece and have it not sound like a standard piano piece. Sure. Which, which you get sick of. Like honestly, after these piano weekends, and the reason they're here is because I put them on a piano weekend concert here at Garth Newell, I always think that's too much piano. Like it's, <laughs> it's just too much of the same sound. And like... That's why I asked you to do a prepared piano piece is because yeah. I wanted to see what it's like now and what you would think about. So in resonance modes, what were you trying to emulate? You say a different type of instrument or a different type of sound. Yeah. Did you have a concept in mind of that? Yeah, the concept for resonance modes came from this YouTube video I watched. It's a video, a very short video of Mercury, and the sound waves are being sent through it. Mercury has a low surface tension, and so when you send different frequencies through Mercury, it actually forms, just a single drop will form really interesting, beautiful, and wildly kind of different shapes. So you might get something that looks sort of like a messed up triangle and then something that has 20 sides. And the resonance modes of, of Mercury is where it starts, where it forms these different shapes. A um, Tourette's syndrome kind of drop. Yeah, it's, right? it shifts really, really quickly. And, and it, I thought it was really beautiful. So I, I, my original starting point was what if I'd put droplets of Mercury inside the piano and watch them bounce around? That would be completely impractical, unsafe. And, and violated the rules of the commission, which stipulated that the performer and the piano stayed safe. Not dead. So, yeah, it's important. That's right. But I thought that was an interesting and kind of fertile ground to start the creative process. So 
from there, I, I kind of decided on these preparations and then used the imaginative space of what would it be like if drops of mercury were inside the piano resonating in different ways. So it's kind yeah. of an imaginary preparation that, that spawned a, a real one. Is this often your compositional process? Do you have an imaginary goal that you take from something that is real? It's different for each piece, you know? I, I've written about dreams. Uh, I often start from scientific or theoretical viewpoints because I think sometimes the things that we study through science puts a lens on things in the, in the real world that almost seem surreal. Huh. Um, you know, we, our experience of everyday reality seems objective until, we, until sometimes we look at things through the lens of science and we realize that there are things that are so strange that they almost seem impossible. They seem like they aren't real, but they actually are real. Those are the real things. Yeah. And so that, that to me is a really interesting starting point for the creative process because um, I'm, not, I'm not even, I'm not coming up with my own imaginary stories. I'm starting from something that is hyper real. It's, it's actually real, but it's so strange that it kind of spurs interesting uh, thoughts for me, at least. Do you so, think that's a unique thing? Because you're coming from a point of view of science and most people, they don't really see the absurdity of it, mm -hmm. the fact that it is. And maybe that's like, a, you see it that way and therefore you create something from that. Well, I mean, there are other composers that are inspired by science, but I mean, for me, the, the take is, um, the takeaway is that, you know, I, as a composer, I write about things in the world that interest me. Um, people, stories, ideas, Mm -hmm. Those are my starting points. And mm -hmm. really without those starting points, I, I don't really know what to do. Um, I haven't written a piece for a long time called Sonata or Rhapsody or, or Symphony because, because idea, musical ideas come from, from conceptual ideas for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I often come up with titles first and then oh, music really? comes later. Huh. Um, and because of that, I'm always kind of trying to soak up the world and, and, and find interesting things that might, might spur a musical uh, concept from there. So you're not the type that believes in just working and writing and something great will come out of that. You believe in experiencing and having a life. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, definitely feel like um, concept and experience is really important. Um, yeah, I pair that when it, comes, when it comes down to like actually sitting down in the process I definitely experiment with sound a lot, and um, and I, I suppose on some level there's an uh, there's some abstraction that I'm coming up with with sound, mm -hmm. and um, it's you know I think a big question for for a lot of composers like what kind of meaning is being transmitted through our music? Um, mm. I mean if if for example someone heard resonance modes and didn't know the story of the mercury behind it, is the piece less effective? because I highly doubt they'll understand it's about Mercury. I don't think so. To me, yeah. I'm interested in, I, th I hope that the music stands on its own. I think the concept can enrich someone's ex experience. It can also change it for the worse, I suppose. It really just makes for good it's, program notes. Yeah, right? it does. Like and it's an entry point. It's, a, it's an entry point for people because sometimes, um, you know, this piece and, and other things I've written, sometimes there's a level of abstraction that people aren't familiar with. And when I think about art forms and the way a lot of people have a way into those art forms, it's usually through a story, through mm -hmm. a connection, something that, that they do understand that gives them an, a window or a way to connect with something that maybe is new. And yeah, so I think that's right. really important with contemporary music that as a composer, a title and a program note and a chance to talk to the audience before a performance gives me an opportunity to connect with them before they hear the piece. I and you have lived with this music for a very long time. They're hearing it for the very first time, and unfortunately, in most situations, they only hear it once. Yeah. So if I can give them an opportunity to kind of grasp onto something in the music, something that will, that will frame their experience in a positive way, hopefully positive way, <laughs> then I think it's worthwhile taking advantage of that opportunity. Not Definitely. everyone feels the same way. And, you know, in 2017, I think the frame of a symphony mm -hmm. is still is still a framework, it's still a, a context. It puts people in a certain kind of mind. So, right. so to me, there really isn't anything anymore as a completely abstract music, absolute musical <laughs> experience. Right. People often find some way of contextualizing it. And that's really actually what's very beautiful is that everyone has their own 
experience of the piece. Yeah, I think people, they sometimes have a feeling that they can't understand music mm. on its own. Especially newer works. Yes, yeah. and um, to have a living composer there to kind of explain it and then to reassure them, I think is very helpful. Sure. And I think also like just knowing that a living composer is an actual person and interacting and like, you know, has these thoughts and feelings and conceptions and reactions really personalizes music for them and it enriches their experience. When I think good musicians and good composers, when, when they're engaging the audience, um, tend to show a kind of vulnerability yes. that makes the music seem all the more real. Definitely. You, you show, I think today in one of the concerts, uh, Tian said something about, I hope, I hope this goes well or something. <laughs> and the audience laughed because, you know, there's, I think, an illusion perhaps that, that performers get up there and they do their thing and it's you know, it's perfect, and that's <laughs> but like that's not what that's not what's in the mind of a performer no. or a composer in a performance. There's a vulnerability, uh, you know, wondering what people will think, how it will go. I mean, it, my mind during a performance is a is a hurricane, and and showing that I think gives people um, a sense of, of you know your humanity. So that's a that's an interesting point. I, I didn't think about that. I, I was just thinking, like, as a performer, like, you kind of have to let go of everything. Like, mm. you're just, uh, there's a desperation, like, a need to, <laughs> well, I mean, a need to connect, and it's just, yeah. like, you really have, and I think people see that. They, they crave that. And that's what I was thinking with vulnerability. But it's interesting, because this is a question for both of you, actually, um, because as a composer going through a performance, do you feel frustrated because you cannot control what happens sometimes? I, I used to feel more frustrated than I do now. I, I think the more I work with great performers or the more opportunities mm -hmm. I get to work with people who really know what they're doing and really uh, tend to like what I'm doing, yeah. uh, I realize that I only really know half the story when I'm writing a piece. And working with someone oh. like you uh, that knows, you know, it seems like you know the, the music more than I do just because you play the instrument. Mm -hmm. you, you, know the, you know the whole repertoire and I'm... I'm just sort of adding to it. There's a context there that I'm only just now starting to scratch the surface of. Uh -huh. um, so I, I love I love to uh, listen to like the first rehearsal or the last rehearsal or something uh, of my piece, and then hear that there's something that the performer's doing because they just sort of felt it was natural, mm -hmm. um, and I would never have thought of it in a million years, and it just it works better. You know, so um, once I learned to sort of give up that mystical uh, total control that the composer is supposed to have. Absolute authority. Yeah, yeah. Once I learned to give that up, it I was always a facade. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, Fortunately. It's, right, exactly. Because it really is a, it is a collaborative process for everyone involved. Right. In fact, I was just thinking today, too, when you say that I don't have any control as to how it goes, when, as you said, when you are afforded the opportunity to talk to the audience before mm -hmm. it, it, the tone or the content of what you're saying to the audience mm -hmm. it adds something to the room Definitely. before the piece and I yeah. think today for instance I, I was a bit I had a bit of levity in my my speech yeah. at the beginning and it seemed to loosen up the audience a little bit and I think there are moments of the piece that that worked a lot better for me having done that I think so yeah because yeah. you gave them the expectation that this was about to happen. Permission to laugh. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And you should always have permission to laugh if there's a funny moment in music. You know. Or if there isn't a funny moment in music, you can, you can still laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. The, the reason I write music is to work with people. I suppose mm -hmm. a computer can play all the right notes in the right time, but that's not what I'm interested in. And there's a dimension always that a performer, a great performer, brings to a, a piece that makes it better than I could possibly have imagined. So that's it, those question marks are the exciting parts. <laughs> and it's the piece isn't done until you bring it to life. Well, that's reassuring for us to hear because <laughs> we are live in fear always of being replaced by wonderful electronics that can always do exactly what the commander wants. You may them play to do. alongside. <laughs> 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 but I, I I have no doubt that performers will will have work. I mean, the, it's they can't wear hot pants. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. Well, any anyone who knows music will hear the best, most expensive musical samples playing stuff, and they'll yeah. immediately know that. That's not a real person. Yeah. yeah. There's just some things you can't replicate, no matter how many how many giga gigabytes of RAM you have in your computer. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and you mentioned the hot pants, but like today, <laughs> to go example, back to the hot pants. Yeah, to go back to the hot <laughs> pants. You know, 
I, I like recordings. Recordings are nice for getting an idea of what a piece sounds like. But mm -hmm. to me, a piece isn't really real until I hear it live in person. Mm -hmm. um, the meaning of the sounds is wrapped up to some extent in the way those sounds are made and the mm -hmm. way the performer performs them. I think, I think audiences take away greater clarity from a performance when they get to see it and engage with it visually. Definitely. And that was certainly true today where there were brilliant moments in your piece performed brilliantly that were <laughs> that much more effective because we saw them. Um, and that, that's a really important element. Again, that a computer would never, ever <laughs> be able to do that. And you did them in hot pants, so there's that <laughs> extra element. <laughs> So, I mean, we're referring to this piece, but uh, we didn't actually get to talk about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. um, let's talk about the piece you wrote. Sure. Uh, well, it's titled Listomania, and it's titled that because it's an homage to Franz Liszt. <laughs> this is a piece I've been thinking about writing for a long time, just because the term Listomania jumped out at me when I first read it, which it's similar to Beatlemania, which I think it was retroactively applied to Liszt after mm. Beatlemania. It's a about how people reacted when they saw this, you know, very attractive virtuoso Franz Liszt Little playing waist, for him. you know. Exactly. Yeah, just, Aquiline you know. Nose. Yeah, and really flamboyant and really just, you know, fiery personality and people women in particularly loved it and went crazy for it, just as young teenage girls did for the Beatles when I they came. I think they threw their underwear on stage. I, I'm yeah. sure they did. <laughs> um, so my, my idea for this piece was, what, what what the heck was going through their minds when they were watching these, like, you know, <laughs> we saw, we saw what they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, no, but I'm I was sorry, exploring. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I, I thought, okay. So why don't I, uh, on the one hand, do an homage to Liszt, which mm -hmm. he, uh, what he liked to do a lot was take a popular tune and then improvise on it, just you know, in his style, uh, playing off the audience, doing what they wanted, you know, being really extravagant, really flamboyant, but still holding onto that tune so people know what he's doing with it. Yeah. You know? So on the one hand, I wanted to do that, but on the other hand, I wanted to take the opportunity to take advantage of some 20th century and beyond techniques uh -huh. to try to emulate the experience of what's going on in this audience member's mind. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of explosions of sound, there's a lot of uh, uh, pots boiling over of tension, uh, and uh, even some just sort of wacky, out-of-place musical styles that you uh, might not expect. Ragtime? There's a bit, there's a bit of a ragtime-ish. Uh, and I, I wanted to sort of try to jumble all this together to, to recreate the experience of someone who was stricken with listomania. Uh, and I, yeah, I think uh, especially with the, the way that you perform the piece, uh, sort of going over the top at the necessary time, but withholding when you need to. Uh, There's really tender moments in the piece, too. Exactly, yeah. And it's, uh, it, you, you can't go over the top without being tender. You know, you need to have the context for that. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I think you totally nailed it. I think you're you're the reincarnation of Franz Liszt today. <laughs> That's all a pianist wants to hear, really. <laughs> I should probably explain that there is the popular tune that you used, which is not by Liszt; it is by Bach. Yes. And why did you pick that tune? So this this tune it was uh, "Sheep May Safely Graze" from the mm -hmm. Hunter's Cantata by Bach, which uh, people know uh, mostly because it has this delightful recorder duet in it. And and uh, I chose this piece in particular because I've I've noticed that that List when he chose pieces he chose popular pieces, um, but they weren't necessarily. Uh, the type of piece that's like ripe for these these virtuosic variations. Right. A lot of the times they're just sort of. He almost seems like he's making fun of the themes in yeah. some ways. You know, he, he and I chose this Bach piece because it's very tender, it's very delightful. And then I, uh, I really, I, for lack of a better term, I mangle it. I mangle yeah. it and I and I, I go crazy with it. And it, it just seemed like a very listing idea to take this dignified, delightful, well composed Bach theme and yeah. then. Uh, just ha have uh, have my way with it, you know. <laughs> I mean, I love the contrast because that that was the first moment that people laughed was when they suddenly, out of a big, huge cluster, they heard. It's so even and calm. 
and then it's the perfect backdrop for something crazy. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, with that context of the even calmness, it's very easy to shock people with the opposite of that. This right. raucous, uneven sound. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> List is, is a, a whole different character for mm, me. Okay. I think, you know, I, 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 know, I know quite a few pianists, and I'm not sure all of them will uh, aspire to be like Franz Liszt. Right. You know? He had, obviously, fantastic technique, and, uh, you know, I've never seen it, obviously, but allegedly just a, just a great personality on stage and you mm -hmm. know, really sold it. But I, want, I wanted to explore Liszt with this piece. In other piano music, I might, I might explore someone else. You had said you had the inklings of an idea that was over the top and virtuoso, which is a lot of things that people apply to pianists. And Liszt is such an important part of the pianist repertoire. Is the reason you picked Listomania sort of to encapsulate what pianism means? Oh, no, way. nothing so grandiose. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> no, I think I, can't, I heard the term Listomania and thought, all right, I got to do this piece and it has to be for solo piano. Some of my favorite piano music is uh, the exact opposite of Liszt. It's very, mm -hmm. it's very placid, it's very measured, it's very restricted, but still just absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. uh, the piano is a, you know, the reason why people have been writing for it for so long is because it's a very versatile instrument, yeah. and Liszt is just one small but very loud corner of that repertoire. Very loud, yeah. It was interesting. I thought the piece managed to be sort of an homage to Liszt, and also funny, and also a little bit of a critique. Yeah. Of, of what list is and what he does yeah. and, and the effects that, that it has. It was really interesting to hear it in the context of a program of list. I mean, I think Peace had a lot of dimensions in that sense. Yeah, yeah and I think um, I, I was actually uh, talking about it last night that I was mm -hmm. a bit worried that my piece was going to be right after a few list pieces thinking, oh, like the, everyone's going to be comparing the two. Oh. And, Yes, mm. but yeah. in a very positive way. Yeah. Well, and then, yeah, after the, after the performance today, I was like, wow, this is like the perfect context yeah. to have this. Because mm -hmm. I, I was critiquing List in a way, or at least I was critiquing the idea of uh, this just over-enunciation of very simple material for the sake of oohs and ahs, bells and yes. whistles, as, I, as someone yeah. described it today. And, and, you know, that's something that I, uh, I don't generally ascribe to that idea. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, you know, when I was studying for writing this piece, listening to list after list after list. Oh, were you? Yeah. It gets to the point where it's a like, list binge. it's too much. Yeah. yeah. You, well, and you, you see the tricks much sooner than yeah. any other yeah. composer when you're studying lists because most of the stuff was most likely improvised before mm -hmm. it was written down. And it's just things that he knew was, he was good at yeah. and knew that the audience would just love. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. The virtuosity for virtuosity's sake, there's no like intent beyond that. And that gets really old really quick. But it's funny. I mean, Liszt would improvise a lot, but he actually started playing from the score because he wanted people to see that it was his piece he wrote out, that he wasn't improvising. To be honest, I don't like playing Liszt. Yeah. And there's a reason why they, all my piano friends, played Liszt, but I didn't, and I played your piece. Like, I mean, it's just, I, I get sick of it. I get sick of all the um, yeah. passage work and all the things that are over the top, just yeah. for being over the top. Well, and this has always been a thing with, with me and music, is uh, if I'm annoyed by something, I sort of wait for the annoyance to sort of wear off, and then uh. I think, okay, now how can I turn this into an interesting piece? Uh. Um, like for instance, I I'm a big Twilight Zone fan, and if oh, you know, really? yeah, if you know anything about the old Twilight Zone scores, uh, and you know they're by great composers like Bernard Herrmann and Jerry mm -hmm. Goldsmith, and I love those guys, but uh, gosh, every single Twilight Zone episode score had vibraphone with the pedal down with the motor running you know to make it sound vaguely alien right you know? right right. and i've always just hated that sound and then after that wore off i wrote a piece this last summer and thought all right well i'm going to use it in an interesting way now huh. and i it was the same way with list with this where i i was so annoyed with the tricks that he was using i'm like all right great now i'm going to turn that into a piece it's Wait, sort so... of as a therapy to get oh over yeah, it. yeah it's a therapy <laughs> So writing is therapy for you. It's funny, Mark Carlson was here, he was saying how writing was therapy for him too. Hmm. But that was for a very different reason. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you were always annoyed with Liston and this kind of grew out of that? Or You know, back when I first started listening to List and sort of didn't have the musical know-how that I have uh -huh. now, I always got bored by List compared yes. to other, like, like Chopin or Scriabin. And I didn't oh, know really? why. Huh. At first, okay. when I w first learned about Chopin, it was obvious. It was Chopin's harmonies, his key changes right, were just right. so much on a higher level right. than any composer. And Liszt, I just, 
it's it, it's I, I always quote Macbeth when I talk about <laughs> lift. It's full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's wow, a that's a great stuff. quote. It's, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff, and it amounts to, in so many cases, amounts to a 5-1. You know, right. a dominant tonic, but it's he uses 10,000 notes to get there. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's only after I, I started studying that I realized, and it, even beyond that, I realized, oh, it's the same gestures, but transposed. You know, it's it's very... Uh, Double octaves? Then you have triple octaves? Then you have triplets? And then you have, yeah, I mean... Yeah, all that. Oh, they're, 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 they're kind of three against two, and <laughs> yeah. someone, and then, like, yeah. Yeah, and, and if you were to, like, I, I think uh, Liszt would have been, the, if he lived in the 20th century, he would have been the first composer to jump to the graphic notation. Ah. Because uh, I think so many of his things are huge gestures right. that that are that amount to starting low on the piano and then mm -hmm. sort of rumbling your way to the top yeah but he he notated everything precisely because that's what you did back then right um he wouldn't have to do that today and i don't know if he would well you would also have to that that the pianist knew what he meant in terms of gesture because they yes. didn't have that necessarily the language of that, whereas right. like those were cliches. Yeah, like right, exactly. The thing with list that you get annoyed with and that we all get annoyed with is because everyone plays the same list. Everyone plays the same type of list because he's actually he's actually a, a very complex composer and he's had a lot of different stages. And I'm glad Genevieve played the two song transcriptions mm -hmm. because I think that his song transcriptions can be ex extraordinarily beautiful. I think like his works that are more still more spiritual they can be very moving very deep Absolutely. but everybody plays the flash and dash and yeah. that's the problem with piano in general it's like piano culture piano expectations the the things that we're required to do on juries the things required to do in competitions you want to show your technical prowess mm -hmm. and what better way to do that than list and actually list technically is not that bad like because it's so idiomatic yes yeah, yeah. right and i mean it sounds more impressive than it really is. What is really hard is the control needed for French music or like, you don't have to be that way with this. You just have right. to know how to move your fingers well. Yeah. That's my opinion though. Yeah. So. No, you're right. And I think, you know, everyone is, uh, you know, everyone, well, everyone in a higher generation than me grew up with the cat concerto, the Tom and Jerry doing the Hungarian yeah, yeah, Rhapsody yeah, yeah. number two, right? Or the Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's right. my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's like, yeah, it's because that's what the gra the audiences gravitate towards. That's, yeah. that's what you play as your, as your encore. Um, but you know, in, uh, Dave and I were talking about this this morning. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't completely write off list. I think right. his sense of pianistic color is mm -hmm. unmatched by anyone other than maybe Debussy. Uh, stuff that he does, like you know, well above middle C only, just these coloristic things that he, uh, it really shows a lot of his restraint. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I hate the Dante Sonata, but actually, um, when played beautifully, it is a magical piece. It's just. You don't hear it played beautifully much because everyone and their mom plays it. So that's that's the thing is like Liszt has gotten a lot of criticism because he's gotten a lot of performances from not that imaginative performers. You know what I mean? Yeah. But anyways, but so you actually grew up listening to a lot of solo piano? Are you written a lot for solo piano before? Or? No, actually. Oh, really? Um, okay. I grew up as a saxophonist and okay. I played in the band and I've written one other piece for solo piano or uh, two other pieces, one of which was like so early that it's uh, it's never leaving the folder. You know, <laughs> it's really not that great. Um, but actually I came to solo piano uh, reasonably late just mm -hmm. because it always daunted me. You know, there's so much repertoire. Yeah, 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 that's what people say. Yeah, and in writing idiomatically for the piano, yeah. I think is the, is harder than any other instrument. Oh. Um, well, because, you know, you have two hands, but at times you're playing four different lines. <laughs> and there are ways to do that where it's just no problem at all. Right. And there are ways to do that that is physically impossible. Right. And, if you, and I'm not a pianist myself, and if you're not, and if you don't have the chops to go to the piano and try these things out, mm -hmm. um, you sort of feel you're in no man's land. Oh, I see. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, Matt could only hear his piece an hour before the performance. <laughs> and it, it really is a piece that I would have loved to like work with you earlier just because there are some things that I wanted to suggest. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, like that's interesting that piano is so daunting to you. Is that the same with you, Dave? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a pianist, um, although I do some composing at the piano. I don't feel... It's, it's kind of an instrument that, for me, I've always been jealous of. Jealous. Um, because when I sit down, I feel like actually a lot of ideas mm -hmm. come, to my, come to me. And I, I find it to be a really personal. And it's, it's an instrument where you, can, you kind of have 
you can play something really intimate and really symphonic. Yes. All by yourself. Right. Um, and so it's a really powerful instrument in that way because it's both powerful and it's so intimate. Mm -hmm. um, but the ideas that come to me, my fingers won't play. So, um, so it's an instrument. It's <laughs> a common that I've frustration. Kind of, yeah, I've always kind of been <laughs> jealous of, of pianists and, and of, of the instrument because I feel like it's, a, it's an instrument that I can't really physically wrangle. Mm -hmm. but, um, but as a composer, that makes it all the more tempting. It's so, useful for you. And oh, yet, yeah. yeah. But it's also, you know, obviously very attractive to have an instrument that's so powerful and capable of so many colors and sounds. Mm -hmm. so. Well, okay, so my question for both of you is, if I did not ask any of you guys to write a solo piano piece, would you have ever written a solo piano piece in the time that you did? Matt's alluded to this. I like to write for people. I like to write for people that are committed that are going to pour the energy into my piece that they pour into their typical repertoire mm -hmm. um, that that our collaboration is going to be meaningful I mean you don't always know this but I want to work with people that I'll be a better composer when I'm done working with them <laughs> and that the piece will be better because they played it huh. uh, I, it's pretty I guess a pretty high expectation in a sense but, <laughs> but I, I mean I've had the honor of working with a lot of great performers and I can say that really that's that's been true in every case so I mean, I think the instrument itself is is interesting, mm -hmm. and I imagine at some point it'd be one of those projects that I would do. But again, that repertoire kind of scares me, and yeah. and I guess in a sense, <laughs> if there's a lot of pianists listening, that it's a community that I don't feel quite as invited into right. as others. Yeah. Um, there are other musical communities, choir, band, saxophone, for example, right. where where those musical communities have a voracious appetite for, for new, new music. music. Yeah. And so. I'm more inclined to kind of do those projects simply because they kind of fall into my lap more easily. Right. With piano, it's, it's less common. So th this is a really long answer to the fact that I probably would not have written this piece, especially not a prepared piano piece, because right. it, it's a, yet another roadblock for performers. I, I wrote for you. Not for the piano. Aww. <laughs> Aww. I mean, that's the case with really with most most pieces. I, I I'm interested in working with people, but I think I think that was what really why I said yes was that I knew that you would give a committed, passionate performance um, of the piece, and that is why I wrote, you know wrote it. So yeah, awesome. ditto. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Well, yeah. now that you've stroked my whatever, but <laughs> no, I mean it's just that is a thing that I wonder about because. Um, Pianists don't play a lot of new music, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't really see a lot of cool new pieces that are interesting for piano, and yet I see a lot of really interesting things for ensemble or for wind or what. So um, I just wanted to pick your brain about why. It's, it's a relationship, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I get that it's tempting when you have so much great repertoire not to feel compelled to develop new repertoire, mm -hmm. but I think if that relationship were stronger, if, if there was an imperative from pianists that we need to continue building yeah. repertoire, we need to continue exploring what's possible on our instrument, if that feeling was conveyed kind of in a more global sense as a community yeah. to the community of composers, I think more repertoire would be would be written. And, right. you know, there'd be better pieces. And, Demand for and it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Audiences would be more familiar with it. Um, yeah. so. Well, and like, like everything else, I think, literally everything else in the world, it's all about communication. Right. And, you know, you, you asking if I would I've written a solo piano piece if I weren't asked. I constantly have different ideas for pieces, and sometimes mm -hmm. they fall into certain mediums because it would just certain, it'll work better that way. Right. And I have a backlog of probably about four or five pieces I think would work best on solo piano. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not going to write them, again, for piano. I'm going to write them for people. Because generally, when I have these ideas and I talk to somebody who might might be a little hesitant about yeah. uh, commissioning a composer. I explain to them my idea, and like that passion gets across, and then they sort of they get it. Yeah, you know, they, it's, it clicks for them. They realize this isn't just you know mm -hmm. piano sonata number one by living composer that nobody knows. This yeah. is a, this is a generally big idea that I'm very passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I'm very passionate about working with someone who's also passionate about making it all come to life. You know, it's it's communicating, collaborating into making a it's something completely new. Yeah. And, oh. I was just going to say, it's, it's a shift in mindset, you know, and I, I don't say this cynically. There, there's a sense in classical music 
I think to some extent that performers can sometimes be curators of a museum, a musical right. museum. Yes. And, and that's not to say that the pieces aren't living. I mean, you can hear different performances of the piece and, and the piece will change wildly. And, right. you know, I, I, there's many pieces I've heard many times that I love because I want to hear different people play them. And so I'm not saying it's not a living art form, but the mentality of playing something old and cultivating a program of, of music by dead composers is a different mindset than commissioning a new piece. Mm -hmm. When you commission a new piece, there are question marks, there's curveballs for the performer, for the audience, for the composer. When you play, you know, and I, I'm not a super fan of this term, but when you play a masterpiece, there is an assumption that mm -hmm. the work, the yes. notes on the page are gr already great, yes. and you are simply pulling the greatness off the page and into the air. And by proxy, you are great yourself. It, well, yeah, actually. <laughs> that often a, happens to whole, people. There's a whole element of egotism oh my there. God. But, mm -hmm. um, but with a new work, it's less uh, about greatness and whatever mm -hmm. the hell that <laughs> means, and more about you know about curiosity and experimentation. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that when I wrote this piece, like that I was okay with it being terrible because I certainly was not. I just there are risks that you take um, mm -hmm. when you when you write a new piece and when a performer plays a new piece and when an audience listens to a new piece, mm -hmm. and those risks, the rewards can be so great to me that that is always worth it. Mm -hmm. That's why I do this. Right. And, and that shift is just something I think a lot of people are not comfortable making because it is a shift in mentality from kind of the typical classical music presentation and performance standpoint yeah. where you're shifting from kind of a, a interpreting greatness and yeah. letting it waft and... Um, and <laughs> it smells so good. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and a kind of um, musical experiment, you know. And again, I don't, I don't say that in the sense that new pieces always fail, but... Sometimes they do. Sometimes they fail. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes you revise. Sometimes you learn from a project and move on. Yeah. But those kind of learning experiences happen yeah. with old pieces too. So yeah, it's all, it's, all it's always it. been that way. Like. Yeah. And, the, and there's something to the process yeah. for everyone involved. You know, it's very, it's very instinctual. It's like, you know, yeah. the, the ancient times where tribes first started forming, you find people that you jive with. You yeah. Know? performers and composers or chamber musicians they find people that they have similar views on this yeah. music and just making music together is a fulfilling experience with people that you agree so strongly so deeply with yeah i mean it should be that way it's a communicator that is the best one because it's instant doesn't require skills to communicate expression it's right there music that's why we love it that's why i love it but it's funny to me because i will get comments from people you know isaac will joke with me and be like you really like composers, don't you? They're like your people, aren't they? And I was like, what makes you say that? Like, why? Why is this unusual? Pianists will be like, why do you do this? You don't get the music till like right before. Like, you just why? Your why? Problem. Like, why? why do you do this? But the thing is, is being a pianist is hard, right? I mean, being a, anything is hard, but being a pianist has all these expectations on you, and then. There's a certain process that you're supposed to go through. People expect you to play at a certain level of polish. They we, we couldn't possibly know what you're capable of until you play this piece. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then you have to have everything like well learned way in advance. And pianists will spend a year doing the same rep. Like they just keep on playing the old pieces and they keep on bringing it back. And like maybe it's because ADD, whatever, I just hate that. And the thing about being involved in creative process is like I can take risks and it's allowed. I love being able to get that immediate feedback from you guys. Just be like, well, this intent that you told me you wanted, is that coming across? That's very helpful for me. It, it teaches me great communication skills to know, did I really do desolate? You know, <laughs> like, how do I do desolate better? That kind of thing. We don't get that. You can't ask Schumann if we did F sharp minor sonata well. Well, and that's another, another rewarding part of the process I mentioned from the composer side. What what we get out of it but from the performer side you you have to give up some of that ownership some of the yeah um, you used a, what was the word used earlier authority. Uh, yeah the authority yeah. you're the ultimate Absolutely. authority when you play right. a dead composer nobody's yeah. <laughs> nobody's telling you you're doing it wrong um when you play a living composer you you give up that authority um but what you gain is a collaboration you gain in the best case scenario you gain the opportunity to actually have some input in the piece to shape something that's yeah that's yours in, in a big way. I mean, not just your name on the score, but like that this is like something you have co-created. I, I can't imagine the situation of a pianist, say at a big conference in a, in a conference room with 5,000 other pianists mm -hmm. playing the Chopin piece that everyone knows. 
and they mm. know that part is coming yes. up that's really hard and are they going to nail it? You yes. know? I can't imagine what that feels like because how could you possibly insert yourself into this piece? Because if you do anything yeah. slightly different, then people are going to assume it's a mistake or assume right. it's something, something that shouldn't be there. Uh, with, with new music, you, know, you, you own the piece just as much as the composer does in a lot of ways, right. I think. I mean, it's also, well, one, you cannot please everybody. Like, you just have to be okay with, like, pissing some people off with your Bach interpretation, whatever. But I hate having the answers given to me. Like, I hate having that road already. <laughs> You're with... creating the performance practice. Exactly. You don't have the weight of that on your yeah, shoulders. Yeah. I mean, we talked a lot about the weight of the repertoire, yeah. but as pianists, yeah. you have the weight of performance practice on your shoulders with a new piece. You're making it up, you know. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, it's your own. Of course, own. some like, <laughs> notes and rhythm. Yeah. You're, you're making it up with the composer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm the most nervous when I play for a composer just because he knows exactly how I am actually recomposing what he wrote, and that's not yeah. good. That's not. Yeah. Well, and I think composers like working with you because of that sentence you just said—that you're the most nervous playing for a composer. Yeah, you scare you, me. Well, no, <laughs> but it's that it's that you care enough yeah. about the music to even potentially lose sleep over that one bar, right? <laughs> you know, I, and that's like, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to come off as like being like a, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the master of you, no, you no, should no. feel bad. But like, you know, there, there's a lot of times where uh, us composers work with people who they want to do a new piece because it uh, shows their range for applications. But really, once oh. that's done, they're going to they're gonna go back to Beethoven. Right, right, you right. Know? And I yeah. think um, it's very rare for a composer to find someone like you that not only uh, appreciates the, mm -hmm. the process, but uh, is deeply invested in the process. And that's, yeah. that's the best. Well, that shouldn't be that way. It's kind of, kind of ridiculous. Like, I, <laughs> well, no, I mean, sorry. Like, you know this. You probably bitch about it all the time. It is the performer's onus to make something interesting. Hmm. Like, you yeah. guys give us the music, but we have to bring it to life, right? It's just a missed opportunity, I think. Well, yeah. I, mean, I really appreciate that fundamental assumption that when you play a piece, you have an opportunity. Don't yeah. miss it. Yeah. You have an opportunity to make something interesting. Why, if you put a tremendous amount of effort and care and sleepless nights into the interpretation of Chopin, would you not put that same care and attention to detail into a new piece? Right. It's not yeah. like you gave me a piece that you just whipped together. You yeah. spent a lot of time on it, and I appreciate that. And that's what I'm scared of, is like pissing somebody off because I'm not like actually trying, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Not quite yet. yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think uh, I'm I'm just as scared of letting you down when yeah, I write absolutely. this piece. Yeah. You know, knowing knowing what you can do and what you have done, it's uh, it's intimidating. Yeah, it's very intimidating. Oh, what? No. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like half sure. your size. You could squash me with. <laughs> no, it's intimidating because because when when I hand you a score or any performer a score, there's an element of trust that. Mm -hmm you trust me to have written something that's going to be worth your time and the audience's time and that yeah. you're going to dedicate a lot of hours to the piece, I better give you something that's worth your, your sacrifice, you know? And so that's, that's <laughs> always my worry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Is, this, is this worthwhile? Is this worth your time and the audience's time? Now, is that a thought that has come from just, like, working with people who don't care as much? Or is it just something that... Working with people that don't, those, those rare situations, it, it sort of just feels like a, a bump in the road. I, right. I, I tend to, when I work with people, most of the time it's, it's a great experience yeah. because we both make it a great experience. You mm -hmm. know, if someone's going to be sort of combatant or, or, you know, doesn't really care about the process, uh, I'm still going to give it my all. It'll just, it just won't be as, as pleasant of an experience as it could be. Right. Uh, but those aren't the experiences that I remember and cherish. Right. You know? And plus, if a one performer gives it a bad job, you just give it to another performer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I absolutely agree with what Matt said. <laughs> I think most musicians probably could have done something else. We do music yeah, yeah. because we love it. And so... Well, I, I thought you did my, it for the paycheck. That's right. <laughs> I haven't told my students this. Like, when you sit down to write something, write the things that you love, that, like, today made it worth getting out of bed in the morning. And... So those moments when I have an experience where someone doesn't pour what I think they should into a piece or something, it's, yeah, it is a bump in the road because the fact is every, every time I sit down to write, I'm going to try to give everything I've got um, yeah. to it. And, and hopefully that, that same passion is brought by the performers and, and hopefully by an audience too. So. Yeah, well, I guess it's getting late. 
So we should probably wrap this up. Sure. But I do have a stupid question to ask each of you. Um, <laughs> there are no stupid questions, only stupid people. <laughs> okay, stupid questions with good answers. But it will be the same question for both of you, but I would really love to hear your answer. So most underrated composer and most overrated composer. Go. <laughs> oh, my God. I might, I might go with List as the most overrated composer. Ooh. But see, the, it depends on who you're talking to. A good explanation for it. Yeah. yeah, it depends on who you're talking to, because uh-huh. I would say the audience overrates List, but I'd say mm-hmm. pianists and, and musicians probably uh, don't. Uh, oh. Okay, I, I, I'll stick with List for overrated. Okay. Um, most underrated composer. Gosh, that's going to take a while. Okay. About. You go, you go, Dave. I'll think of something. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, They're not alive, most of them, so you can. <laughs> so I'm not gonna offend anyone. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, well, okay, I'll come about this roundabout because I'm. I don't think I'm capable of answering something in a direct way. But um, <laughs> one thing that I do think is interesting is how we often kind of pigeonhole, well, artists, composers too, in in. Um, and we kind of think of them as capable of one thing. I mean, List, we've talked a little bit about the fact that List actually has some really interesting pieces. There's some you know, short, very strange harmonic language moments in some pieces. And, mm-hmm. um, but yet we kind of think about like the iconic moments. So yeah. um, I think we tend to, it's, it's possible to kind of overrate lots of different composers and not appreciate some of the quirky, you know, sometimes you get known for, you get your number one hit. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's usually <laughs> and not then nobody your looks work, at your, right? yeah, yeah, nobody looks at the rest of what you've done. I mean, Ravel is, I think, to some extent like that. You know, how many people know more than Bolero, but. Which is, I mean, he's piano trio. Amazing. Like, yeah. Just, yeah like, every, amazing. Everything he like, did was a masterpiece. Really. Yeah. yeah. I know you don't like that word. But... <laughs> that's right. No, that's him. Yeah. Oh, master work. That's even yeah, better. Yeah. Um, man, I, I wish I had a straight answer because it kind of depends on context too. I mean, right. composers talk a different kind of mm-hmm. crap about yeah. <laughs> composers than I'm sure performers do. Yeah, um, which is so. what I'm interested in. Because uh. I asked Janice this question, but so it's you really like, do want an answer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just curious. Like, well, like, what kind of do you think everyone talks about your sig of, and then like composers you wish that more people would talk about, or more people would play or know about? I actually got a great one now that I think about it. Okay. If, if you frame the question that way. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, so this this summer I, I took a job of, of engraving a piece that you know taking the handwritten engraving cool. of it and putting it into a um, uh, into the computer program to make it legible. Mm. And it's of this this composer whose name is uh, Ethel Smith. Mm-hmm. who people might know her as up until this last year was the only woman ever to be programmed by the Metropolitan Opera. Right. Yeah, and this was back in uh, God, the 19-teens, I think. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I think she, it might actually be in 1903. Yeah, way early. It's, huh. it's a uh, travesty. But then they got Seriaho's opera, and it was wonderful. <laughs> the second woman in a hundred and some years. I wow. know, right? There, wow. yeah, we well, can do better, I think, Got to start somewhere. Summer. Right, right. <laughs> um, but Ethel Smith, so uh, there's this piece she wrote called The Prison, which is mm-hmm. a 75-minute orchestra work with chorus and then a solo uh, baritone and a solo soprano. The mm-hmm. baritone plays the prisoner, and the soprano plays the soul of the prisoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, in engraving this, I literally took every single line and then copied it out verbatim into the computer program. So I dug deep into this piece. piece yeah. wow. And it has never been performed uh-huh. in its full state. And luckily, uh, it's going to be performed in Johnstown, Pennsylvania next April. And it is... I'm, I was shocked that it had never been performed before. Right. It is it, it is such a deep, interesting piece yeah. that has just been sitting dormant for o- almost a hundred years. Interesting. Uh, so I would say that's uh, I'm very happy that someone is going to be performing that. I think that's a very underrated piece. Ah, okay. So underrated piece. Um, I have to check it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Johnstown, Pennsylvania, April 2018. <laughs> I'll try. To, it's not that far, right? Like it's a driveway. And. I think I, I think I'm incapable of giving a specific answer to this. It's because you love everything. This question. <laughs> I'm gonna say David Beeman. <laughs> <laughs> Most underrated. No, no. no. Um, you play him all the time. Definitely. Every program. Oh. Um, uh, well, I mean, I just one thing I think is really interesting is that there are so many friends and colleagues, composer friends and colleagues that I think are really interesting, and I'd like to see their work supported and. I suppose in some sense um, there are institutional forces sometimes that underrate living composers and um, yeah. I think that it's really great when, when a lot of different voices are heard and 
when when a lot of different people are given opportunities to to write and to have their music heard so yeah um there's lots of underrated living living works yet to be written as well right that i think you know i'd love to see come to life well cool thank you so much can i have you guys plug yourselves where can people find out about you and your like music um well uh www.davidbeatenbender.com. <laughs> now, how do you spell beat and bender? Yeah, it's a long, long name. <laughs> <Got some time>. <laughs> <laughs> B-I-E-D-E-N-B-E-N-D-E-R. And, uh, yeah, I've got stuff there on my website. Um, recordings and scores and all that stuff is available there. And if you're a performer, I'd love to love to work with you. Yeah. And and I, it's always, I think, one of the biggest compliments you can give a composer is just the time to listen to something. So. Yeah. yeah. And uh, pianist, hit him up. More pianists hit people. <laughs> and Matt? Uh, you can find me at the Comedy Cellar Thursday nights at 10. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're, the, you're the one day always start with, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Matt has a better response for everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, yeah. Uh, no, you could go to my website. Everything's there www.matthewbrowncomposer.com. And that's brown, brown with an E. With an e. Yeah, yeah. Right. That stole. is brown with an E. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, brown with an E. We just watch it out for you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I wonder, mattbrown.com, without an E, who is that? Have you looked that up before? Uh, mattbrown.com. You know, I'm not sure. You know, it's weird because matthewbrown.com, with an E, yeah. is uh, there's no one that has a site on it, uh-huh. but someone owns it for some reason. Yeah. Oh. So they can charge you. And... Yeah, and I'm not going to, I don't know, it's, yeah. no one visits the website anyway, so why would I pay a bunch of money to buy the domain, you know? Wait, so your domain is not Matthew Brown, it's Matt Brown. Matthew Brown Composer. Composer, oh, okay. Yeah, no punctuation. Just in nobody case people didn't. Nobody fortunately had bought David Biedenbender yet. So. Yeah, of course, nobody can type it and find it either, but. <laughs> I can type, I am now have the trick of, you do Bieden, mm-hmm. no, you do Bied and Er. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Once yeah, you yeah. figure out B-I-E, it's not all that tough. Because people switch to E's and I's. I'm yeah. afraid I'm going to oh, do that. I've never found a tough Biden Bender. Biden Bender. Oh. And we've come to the end of this interview. As always, we're on iTunes as So Many Wrong Notes. And we're also on Facebook. Same name. Instagram. Same name. Twitter. Same name without the S. Talk to you later. Bye.